back to America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, and my friend Professor Akil Omar is here again. Hi, Akil. How you doing? Good. I guess it wouldn't be America's Constitution without Amar. So um, today we're going to go back to the words that made us, um, which in about a month will be on your bookshelves. And we're going to the end of the book. Um, to the, uh, the American founders have have appeared on the stage, they've done their work, and now they're preparing to leave the stage. And one of the, I think, the great findings that Akil has, has uh, presented to us in this book is the, the fact that the way that the founders left the stage is individual, that is, they all had their own uh, unique exit, although sometimes it was sort of combined with each other. Um, it was significant, and it was in some sense, intentional. And I think that uh, this is something I've never really read before. And uh, I think it's a real treat for, for you, the audience, to, uh, to get some early exposure to it. So we'll, we'll start with some of those today. So uh, Akil, why don't you give us a little reading here? Thanks, Andy. None of America's greatest founders composed a grand letter to his countrymen on his deathbed. Still... Americans searching for implicit farewell messages did not have far to look. Franklin went first. He died as he had lived, trying to better himself and the world. He was always tinkering, always inventing, always self-improving. He believed in progress, and he saw both himself and his country as works in progress. Some of his progressive ideas involved science and technology, the lightning rod, Bifocals, the Franklin stove. Other progressive ideas were more social and political, a lending library, a volunteer fire company, a philosophical society, a non-sectarian university, the intercolonial Albany plan. In 1787, just days before the start of the Grand Federal Convention in Philadelphia, Franklin accepted the presidency of the world's first notable abolition society. He had bought and owned slaves earlier in his life. Doubtless influenced by his Quaker surroundings, but also moved by Enlightenment philosophy, common sense, and a grand strategy, he eventually came to see that slavery was wrong, that it should end, and that America should lead the way. Knowing that death was near, he decided that within America, he himself should lead the way and make abolition his last great cause, his last gift to America and the world. As president of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, Franklin signed a petition in early 1790 that reached Congress on February 12th. Exactly 19 years later, the magic number for Thomas Jefferson... Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin would be born on this day, February 12th. A multiple coincidence about moral and scientific progress that surely would have delighted Franklin. Franklin's petition was direct and earnest. This was one side of Franklin. Paraphrasing the declaration on whose drafting committee Franklin had served, the petition proclaimed that, quote, Mankind are all formed by the same almighty being and equally designed for the enjoyment of happiness. Equal liberty was originally the portion 
and is still the birthright of all men. Unquote. From these basic premises flowed the pe- petition's conclusion and prayer for relief. Congress should, and this is a quote, remove this inconsistency from the character of the American people and step to the very verge of the power vested in you for discouraging every species of traffic in the persons of our fellow men. Unquote. Congress from the Lower South raged at the very idea of discussing slavery. A couple of Quaker anti-slave trade petitions had reached Congress on February 11th. Now that Franklin's great name was directly involved and that American slavery itself, as distinct from the African slave trade, was apparently being drawn into question, the stakes shot up. Seconds after Franklin's petition was read aloud on the House floor, South Carolina Representative Thomas Tudor Tucker leaped to his feet. Do these men expect a general emancipation of slaves by law? This would never be submitted to by the southern states without a civil war. That's a quote, of course. In July 1776, it will be recalled, South Carolina's Continental Congressman Thomas Lynch Jr. had made a similar statement. If it's debated whether slaves are our property, there's an end of the Confederation. Tucker displayed remarkable confidence in his own superiority as a constitutionalist compared to the mere likes of Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) The condescending South Carolinian, quote, was surprised to see a memorial on the subject of slavery and abolition signed by a man who ought to have known the Constitution better, unquote. Other representatives joined the fray. George's James Jackson and Abraham Baldwin and South Carolina's Adanis Burke and William Lawton Smith proclaimed the petition substance anti-constitutional because Congress had no power to do anything whatsoever until 1808. Even to seriously consider the petition would be unconstitutional. Many other House members countered correctly the 1808 clause governed only the early abolition of the international slave trade, and the Congress surely had power to consider a wide range of other measures that might tend to lessen or ameliorate slavery. In 1789, Congress had briefly considered imposing a $10 head tax on each imported slave, as pointedly allowed by the 1808 clause itself, and had in fact prohibited slavery in the Northwest Territory. Even more fundamentally, many on the floor and in the gallery were disturbed to hear some members insist that mere discussion of an important issue was itself unconstitutional. Even if Congress lacked power to act immediately, which was not true, surely Congress could also consider amending the Constitution to give itself the, po- to give itself the power. But how could it do this without discussing the matter? Also, what were anti-slavery folk to make of Jackson's claim that locals would likely kill any future federal judge from Georgia who tried to promote emancipation? As we look back at this debate, a great deal is blindingly clear in hindsight. Unfreedom for southern black slaves threatened freedom of speech for white citizens everywhere from the very beginning and South Carolina and Georgia in particular were always dangerously extreme. 
As debate continued on February 12, 1790, growing ever angrier, Madison became alarmed that things had taken a serious turn. The very debate about the debate was ill-serving the Deep South's cause, but the South Carolinians had no sense of prudence or of their audience. In the process of repeatedly insisting with much fist-pounding that the issue could not be even discussed, they were discussing the issue openly and with the Manhattan Press watching from the gallery agog. The southern extremists, some of whom had never been up north before 1789, were also precipitating a strong and polarizing pushback as action prompted reaction. The open debate was discomforting men such as Madison, upper south slaveholders who, unlike the South Carolinians, were ashamed of slavery and agreed in principle with Franklin, but hesitated to do much about it. So Madison, the master legislative tactician, the de facto prime minister, urged the House to refer the petition to a special committee so that things could calm down. They didn't. When the committee rendered its report in mid-March, trying to delineate what Congress could and could not do, several days of open-floor debate ensued. Georgians and South Carolinians once again insisted that even consideration and discussion of the report was unconstitutional, intending to injure some states in the Union. When this extremist gambit failed, Georgia's Jackson returned to center stage to defend American slavery with a flurry of arguments. America's economic development required slave labor, he said, and blacks were suited for the work that needed doing in climates that were unhealthy for white constitutions. If America refrained from using slaves in such lands, Spain would fill the vacuum and would in a short period dominate various lucrative markets. It was immensely preferable to be a slave in America and to remain in Africa. Once freed, blacks would be unable to intermingle and intermarry with most whites who would not want to associate with them or help to create a motley breed of mixed-race offspring. Sending blacks to Africa was impracticable. Custom and habit deserved respect. The Bible blessed slavery. You know, the, uh, the tone that one gets uh, in, in listening to the... Uh, sort of emphatic South Carolinians is a kind of a bullying tone. And this, uh, I think, reminds me of Joanne Freeman's uh, book on the subject in terms of the, uh, the violence in Congress and such that we saw over the next, uh, next decades. The Field of Blood, yes. uh, my great colleague Joanne Freeman at Yale. And let's try to sweet talk her into joining the podcast. Um, uh, so Joanne, if you're out there, we'd love for you to be a guest in a future podcast. And Joanne was, uh, was actually a, a teacher in a uh, program that used the EverScholar model um, a number of years ago with us. Um, and, and she's a lot of fun. And by the way, for our audience, um, e- even though we want you, of course, to experience this podcast, she has some great videos um, that you can um, uh, listen to and, and, and watch. She's, she's just a lot of fun. She's a very dynamic uh, lecturer and, 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 uh, and really enjoys her, uh, the material that she, she imparts. That's true. Um, you know, in terms of what you were saying about Franklin and the Declaration, uh, you know, there's been some debate over the years of actually, and certainly in those years, about the meaning, what Jefferson's meaning was with uh, 
to the degree that Jefferson was the author, uh, in the phrase, all men are created equal. And here, Franklin, who's on the drafting committee, seems to me he's, he's saying, it. well, it means what it says. Yes. Um, w- would you say that this provides uh, evidence for that, that, uh, that argument? For Franklin's understanding, and he's a, a Quaker. Um, or no, excuse me, he's, a, he's in Quaker, Pennsylvania. He's kind of plain spoken, at least when he wants to be. You know, uh, uh, he can be sort of very direct and commonsensical. Jefferson is a more complicated character in some ways. What exactly did he mean? How did he reconcile that with the rest of his life? He gets worse um, as time goes on uh, on the slavery issue, and we'll show our readers, our audience that, excuse me, in um, a future podcast, whereas Franklin's getting better. He's, he's approaching the end. He's beginning to... To, to, to think about his death. Um, and, and he was always self-improving, but he gets better. His arc is an upward arc. He, his trajectory is bending toward justice. And alas, that's not going to be true for Thomas Jefferson. So maybe Jefferson meant it in 1776 um, and then moved away from it. Maybe he never meant what he said because he, he loved poetry of words. He, um, but, uh, but he... He doesn't always govern in poetry. Um, And again, our audience will see what I mean um, in a future podcast. He gets worse, uh, Jefferson does, as his life proceeds. But but, uh, Franklin's going to end on a high note, um, as you're about to hear. And of course, Lincoln makes much of the Declaration of Independence and this phrase as well. Absolutely. Um, um, And and he does so, I would say, more in a Franklin tradition. Um, than actually a channeling um, Jefferson's complex intent um, to the extent that there was one. So let's hear more about Franklin. Okay, so we've just actually heard Jackson, uh, this guy Jackson from, from the Deep South, making this rousing defense of slavery, anticipating most of the arguments that you're going to hear over the, the next half century, in fact, uh, about this. It's actually a positive good, even. Better for the slaves than, than sticking around in Africa, and someone needs to do the work, and it's blessed by the Bible. So, so this is not someone who's deeply apologetic about this um, evil that um, we're, we're stuck with and we can't get rid of immediately. That is not what we've just heard. Um, and, and, and Franklin um, was paying attention to the response to this, uh, his petition, so um, we're now going to hear from him. Franklin countered with a lovely satire in the press. This was another side of Franklin. This would turn out to be his very last journalistic piece, and it poetically recalled his first journalistic hoax when, as a teenage lad, he had puckishly posed as a middle-aged matron, Silas Duguid. Franklin likewise published his 1790 parody under a pen name, but no one who knew him could miss his signature style and sly wit. The piece pretended to be an earnest letter to the editor telling readers about a 1687 debate among Algerian Muslims concerning their customary practice of enslaving European Christians. Uh, And and here's uh, Franklin's um, letter. Reading last night in your excellent paper the speech of Mr. Jackson, in 
Congress against the meddling with the affair of slavery or attempting to mend the condition of the slaves, it put me in mind of a similar one made about a hundred years ago by Sidi Metmet Ibrahim, a member of the Duan of Algiers. It was against granting the petition of a sect called the Arika, E-R-I-K-A, or purists who prayed for the abolition of piracy and slavery as being unjust. Mr. Jackson does not quote it in his eloquent speech, despite its surprising similarity. The African speech, as translated, is as follows. Have these Arika considered the consequences of granting their petition? If we cease our piratic cruises against the Christians, how shall we be furnished with the commodities which are so necessary for us? If we forbear to make slaves of their people, who in this hot climate are to cultivate our lands? Must we not then be our own slaves? And is it not more compassion, and is there not more compassion and more favor due to us as Muslim Muslims than to these Christian dogs? And if we set our slaves free, what is to be done with them? Few of them will return to their countries. They know too well the great hardships they must uh, they are be subject to. They will not embrace our holy religion, and they will not adopt our manners. Our people will not pollute themselves by intermarrying with them. And what is there so pitiable in their present condition? Were they not slaves in their own countries? Is their condition then made worse by their falling into our hands? No. Here they are brought into the land where the sun of Islamism gives forth its light and shines in full splendor and they have an opportunity of making themselves acquainted with the true doctrine, thereby saving their immortal souls. How grossly are they, the petitioners, mistaken in imagining slavery to be disallowed by Koran? Are not the two precepts to quote no more, masters, treat your slaves with kindness, slaves, treat your masters with cheerfulness and fidelity, clear proofs to the contrary? Of course, Franklin's tongue-in-cheek, topsy-turvy, reversed everything, a classic satirical move. In his alternative universe, dark-skinned Africans, who deemed themselves racially and culturally superior, were enslaving light-skinned European folk. Christians were the slaves, not the masters. The Arika, the phonetic ending syllables of America, were an almost anagram of the Quakers. The scriptural passage came not, as claimed, from the Quran. Rather, they were the very biblical text that Jackson himself had quoted. Franklin's spoof ran in the March 25, 1790 issue of Philadelphia's Federal Gazette. Less than a month later, he was dead at the age of 84, and his countrymen began to see, with hindsight, the special significance of the words he likely knew were his last. His playful piece was also deadly serious. They were his dying words to America. By pretending to excavate the past, Franklin's farewell message was in fact inviting his fellow Americans to envision the future. How would the Constitution's project appear to posterity in 1887, a hundred years after the Grand Philadelphia Convention? If America as a whole did not change course and move toward abolition, as his own Pennsylvania had already done in 1780, would the nation's continuing embrace of slavery and its hodgepodge of Jacksonian rationalizations one day 
come to be seen as every bit as twisted and despotic as Franklin's fictional Algerians of 1687. So I guess Franklin's a, a bit ahead of his time here. He's a genius. Um, and um, I, I paused um, on a certain word and I actually looked over toward you when I was talking about all of his in- inventions and innovations. And yes, and I, of course, just to remind our audience, uh, Andy is a retired ophthalmologist and indeed, um, but, but he still sees a few patients, a um, few very select patients, and, and I'm one of them. I have progressive lenses, yes. not bifocals. Mm-hmm, which, which Franklin did not invent, but yes. <laughs> bifocals was a, was a big enough invention, that's, that's for sure. I mean, it made an enormous difference, you know, to, to people. I think we underestimate just how important glasses are. I think, you know, because there certainly were centuries where there was nothing like that. It is amazing. You take them for granted. And I think of all these biblical stories and um, stories from antiquity where people don't recognize someone. And, and I think like, 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 how can you not recognize Jesus when he, when he you know, reappears um, uh, you know, after um, uh, his, his resurrection or, or, or not recognize this person, this is your, your long lost son or this is your, your you know, how can Penelope not recognize you know, Ulysses or, or something like that, Odysseus? Um, and part of it is because people were mostly blind. Yes, I couldn't <laughs> see. That's true. That's true. Although cataract surgery dates to antiquity, but we'll, we'll spare our... Uh, our listeners, the details of how they did it. So anyway, so now Franklin has, has left the scene. And uh, yes, quite a fitting way, I think, you know, with a forward-looking uh, humanist uh, document, I think. Um, and he, I'm claiming he knows he's dying. This is intentional. He's aware of all that. And people at the time very quickly come to understand that this was his um, dying declaration. This you know anything the, about about the about Franklin's uh, re- the, re- the reaction to his death? But, uh, yes, um, there it was an outpouring of um, uh, affection. Um, it's the first big death under the Constitution, and of course, Adams is grinding his teeth in envy because. Adams is he's a character and, and he has many virtues but but he's exceedingly jealous of of anyone who's getting um, uh, attention and he has a very complicated relationship with Franklin in, in particular so so he is not that happy that that, that Adam that excuse me that Franklin is getting so much love um, and that's going to be relevant uh, uh, later on um, because he's going to be thinking a lot about his um, parting uh, act, his, his, his uh, swan song. Yes. So now you move on, I believe, to Washington. Because he's next chronologically. Um, and he's connected to Franklin in another way, too, which I'll um, uh, explain. Franklin and Washington were America's two greatest founding figures. And it's remarkable that Washington's de facto farewell message when he passed away in 1799 at his Mount Vernon home, was so similar in substance, though not at all in tone, to Franklin's parting soliloquy. Metaphorically, both men died with abolition and emancipation on their lips. Rosebud. 
Franklin envisioned virtuous public action. Congress should pass laws freeing all slaves. Washington embodied virtuous private action. Slaveholders should take actions freeing their own slaves, just as he was doing on his deathbed. Franklin championed abolition as a public petitioner and journalist. Washington affected manumission as a private manager and planter. Franklin was hoping for a complete official end of slavery. Abolition, something like the later 13th Amendment. Washington offered freedom for individual existing slaves and hoped that others would follow suit. Manumission, his own miniature Emancipation Proclamation. Washington was not garrulous in life, nor was he so in death. He did not compose another elaborate farewell message to his countrymen. Had he done so, it would have been his third. Rather, this most private of public men sent a public message via his private choices in his last will and testament. His favorite slave and companion, William Lee, won instant emancipation, and the more than 100 other slaves that Washington owned would soon walk free. It is my will and desire that all the slaves which I hold in my own right shall receive their freedom. Through no fault of Washington's, hundreds of other Mount Vernon slaves lay beyond his testamentary decree. He had no legal authority to free the Mount Vernon slaves whom Martha had inherited from her first husband, Daniel Park Custis. By law, these dower slaves did not fully belong to George, nor did they even fully belong to Martha. They had to go to Martha Custis's heirs, who had no blood relation to George, after her death. Actions proverbially speak louder than words, and in life, Washington had been a man of action, so in death. As in much of his life, as an entrepreneur, as a general, as a president, Washington, in his, testamentar- in his testamentary actions, was a model of careful preparation, sacrifice, and even secrecy. In his will, he made substantial financial provision for his freed slaves, as required by both prudence and Virginia law. He had scraped together enough to do this thanks to years of careful financial planning and penny-pinching. He had kept his manumission plan quiet, not even telling Martha, much as, years earlier, he had kept his Yorktown plan quiet until the last push. Success sometimes required stealth. Washington's characteristic firmness and seriousness of purpose shone through in his stern prose of his last will and testament. Quote, And I do, moreover, most pointedly and most solemnly enjoin it upon my executors to see that this clause respecting slaves and every part thereof be religiously fulfilled at the epoch at which it is directed to take place, without evasion, neglect, or delay, after the crops which may then be on the ground are harvested, particularly as it respects the aged and infirm. The greatest political figure of the 18th century died as the century died, in December 1799. He was only 67, but he was painfully aware that he did not come from a long-lived male line. Neither his father nor his two older half-brothers had reached 50. All three of his younger brothers had predeceased him. 
Thus, death did not ambush this military man. He was ready for it, and he knew that all the world would be watching his final act closely. He had lived in the public eye for a quarter century. As his fame had grown, he too had grown. As he became more and more extraordinary in the eyes of the world, he came to demand more of himself, unlike, say, Jefferson. In his early years, Washington had not been an exceptionally thoughtful or self-critical slave owner. He took slavery for granted. It was the way of the world, the way things had always been. He was not gratuitously cruel, but he was stern and cold, and he worked his slaves hard. If they shirked, he had them flogged. If they fled, he had them caught and sold. As time passed, he became increasingly uncomfortable with slavery. He vowed to stop buying slaves and resolved not to break apart slave families on auction blocks. He told his private correspondents that he hoped slavery might somehow end and that he was open to ideas about how to do this. Over many years, Washington bonded in particular with his manservant, William Lee. In his will, Washington spoke rather tenderly, for Washington, that is, of Lee's attachment to me and of Lee's faithful services during the Revolutionary War. The genuine, if painfully asymmetric, relationship between the general and his valet was poignantly captured by John Trumbull, circa 1788. Um, in, a, in an important painting, which, of course, we'll put up on the show notes uh, on uh, the website, akilamar.com. Um, in uh, this important painting, William Lee's garb in the background is every bit as fancy as that of his famous master, who is utterly comfortable turning away from Lee. Lee has his back. Revolutionary talk in the 1770s obliged Washington to rethink the premises of his upbringing. If all men truly were created equal, with unalienable rights of life, liberty, and happiness, then what? In the end, the revolution became more than talk. In light of all the other revolutionary changes that he himself had sparked as much as anyone, why shouldn't he spark additional revolutionary changes by repudiating the most obvious form of tyranny still left? Between 1775 and 1797, Washington spent more than a dozen years living in the North as general and president, with anti-slavery whites and free blacks all around him, both in his army and in his wider conversational circle. Inwardly, he yearned to be a great man. The world increasingly thought of him as a great man. After 1783, many openly called him the greatest man in the world. How, he came to think quietly, could such a man as himself die without making some sort of anti-slavery statement? What would Lafayette think? What would the French think? What would his fellow countrymen think? And what would posterity think? For if he was indeed the father of his country, then all future Americans were his children, his progeny, his posterity. What would they think of him? Much as the Philadelphia drafters, led, of course, by Washington himself, had laced the document with Democratic sweeteners in anticipation of the Democratic ratification process that lay ahead, so now Washington self-consciously thought 
about the future democratic ratification process that would determine his own enduring reputation and fame. Would future Americans continue to say, yes, we do, when asked to honor him and his memory if he did nothing to reduce the large remaining stain on his good name? Thus, we today should think especially carefully about Washington's death and his personal Emancipation Proclamation, because in all this, he was surely thinking of us. So your your book is is heavily uh, annotated or footnoted and noted, etc. This section is not. Um, of course, it's you know it's at the end, you know, and so forth. But um, and some of this addresses Washington's inner life. Yes. Know? And so is this thinking backwards from his act of freeing his slaves and uh, sort of postulating that this was his thought process? Or is it based on writings or letters or conversations or contemporary interpretations of what he did? Um, how, how did you come to, to write this section? I, not, um, uh, I don't have uh, a deathbed diary entry, um, but what I do cite in the end notes in this section are... Uh, Letters to and from Washington um, that plot his evolution on slavery. Letters to and from his overseers um, on the plantation, to and from Lafayette, um, and others who are urging him to, to uh, do something great on, on slavery and uh, for, for himself and, and for the world. Um, I... Um, uh, do quote, of course, from uh, the key language of the last will and testament itself, um, and um, he's very emphatic on this point. Um, we know that he had composed actually a couple of wills, um, and uh, at the toward the end he burns the other one. Mm. Um, so, to the end, he's a wily general, keeping options open to some extent. Um, later, we're going to have the great Todd Brewster. Um, come as a, um, a guest. He's agreed to do it. He wrote a book called Lincoln's Gamble uh, that talks about um, how Lincoln um, is keeping certain tactical options open as he moves toward the Emancipation Proclamation. So, so initially, you know, there's a process in which Lincoln is dis- crossing the Rubicon and deciding to do it, um, and that's not in a nanosecond. That's a process. Um, and, and Todd Brewster chronicles it day by day in uh, Lincoln's Gamble. And even after Lincoln has decided to do it, there's some tactical questions about when and how and how broadly. Um, and Todd chronicles that. And again, our audience will hear Todd in another podcast uh, discussing Lincoln's Gamble. Um, so um, I, I, I have enough, I think, about Washington's mind leading up to this. But at the very end, I don't have a diary entry. I am trying to put myself in his head, but I have been living in his head to some extent by reading all the letters leading up to this and, and tracing the arc of the life um, and, and seeing him squirm on this, seeing how he moves from flogging slaves um, to, um, for example, committing himself that he's not going to sell them um, against their will. He's not going to break up families. This cr- makes it more complicated for him to actually free the slaves, you see, because if you can't um, um, 
break up families um, in any way. Um, um, you can't actually even uh, let's imagine you know sell some slaves so that you can use that money to free other slaves because they're all part of the family. And and many of the slaves that um, uh, he has are elderly, and it, uh, some folks have even analogized the plantation to an old folks' home. They're actually, um, uh, s- uh, tobacco planting is not slave-intensive the way um, uh, rice and indigo and later cotton um, will be very slave-intensive. So he's actually got more mouths to feed, more hands than he can really truthfully use, but he's committed himself not to sell folks and not to sell people who are married to each other. And, and maybe he owns one spouse, but, but Martha owns the other and Martha's slaves aren't, you know, his to, to dispose of. And there are, um, there's a a multi-generational, um, uh, issue. There's maybe a kid and a parent and a grandparent and, and he's vowed to keep these families intact. Um, Virginia law, requires that he make financial provision for uh, freed slaves, especially the elderly ones. It, you know, today we'd call that social security. They, they need a pension. They, they are no longer perhaps capable of earning their keep, but that's the obligation of the good master to tend to them when they're old and infirm. Um, so there are all these complexities of law and, 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 um, and practicalities, and I have read enough to to know that 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 was all in Washington's head, but on some of this stuff, he didn't um, tell very many folks this, and and there were reasons why. Because if word gets out um, that, for example, then then um, um, that could possibly create uh, slave revolt situations in certain ways. Oh, some of us are going to be freed if George Washington dies. Um, um, now, it, uh, now it's going to be conditional. Martha's dying. Oh, well, so maybe we should take some actions to accelerate that. We talked about um, assassination incentives in, in, in mm-hmm. the presidency. So the, there are all these complex considerations. I'm, I'm fairly confident that um, uh, I've gotten into his head. I've read lots of secondary literature. Um, uh, I do have a lot of endnotes in the book, and I, I, I was trying to be a little bit more sparing here, but um, I don't have a diary entry um, from Washington's last um, few months um, explaining in detail all of his thinking. I should mention that on the uh, Professor Amar's website, akilamar.com, where our uh, podcast appears, as well as on podcast services, as you know, um, when the uh, book is published, there's going to be a section with additional endnotes and documentation, right. which we've mentioned in past podcasts, and also the opportunity for you, the audience, to contribute to that by pointing out uh, errata or, or such things as should be uh, added to the endnotes. So um, this is interesting that Virginia law required that you make provision for freed slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, was this to sort of prevent the slaves from... Having to resort to crime yes. or, you know... Yes, exactly so. So that they weren't vagrants, that they weren't become public charges. It's connected to poor laws and other things that they wouldn't become um, a burden on uh, uh, the rest of the society in the same way that um, a man who impregnated 
um, an unmarried woman had to make provision for the child, lest the child become a, a ward of of the the, the state, um, to fall on um, uh, uh, the, the charity and uh, and the and the beneficence of the the parish, for example. So yeah, it was part, and that's why it mentioned social security. It was part of a kind of um, the security of the masters, not just <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we have to look at most of these laws in, from the somewhat selfish point of view of the masters. Most of them were not uh, so beneficent. Now, um, other states had laws actually banning manumission, correct? And indeed, Virginia in this period is easing manumission. In 1782, the, Virginia passes a law making manumission easier than it was before, and tens of thousands of slaves are actually in, in, the, in the deep south. Um, or at least in the Upper South, in, in places like Virginia, tens of thousands of slaves are actually freed under this law, maybe net-net more than were freed in some of the northern states um, by um, uh, um, uh, manumission laws because there were fewer slaves to begin with in the northern states. So, so Virginia emancipation um, in the 1780s um, and uh, early 1790s is uh, a very important phenomenon. Virginia... Uh, uh, we know that they never end up f- uh, passing a law emancipating slaves the way New, New, New Jersey does and New York does. Um, so, um, but they don't know that that's not going to happen. As late as 1833, Virginia comes close to contemplating, to, uh, to enacting uh, gradual emancipation, gradual manumission law. Um, in the 17... 80s, I believe, uh, the uh, William and Mary actually confers an honorary degree on the noted abolitionist uh, uh, Granville Sharp. It's in the um, early 1790s, two years after Washington's inauguration. So in some states, manumission was just plain illegal. It wasn't just that you that you could, fr- if, you, if you were going to free them, you had to provide for them, but that you wouldn't even be allowed to free them. What was the rationale there? Uh, well, I, I have to confess I haven't studied that in great detail. You always ask the, uh, the best and hardest questions, but I could imagine that um, uh, the fiercest of the slaveholders don't want to create a kind of demonstration contagion effect. Oh, a slave on my plantation finds out that the, the slaves on the, on the neighboring plantation are, are being freed by Massa. And that's giving them all sorts of ideas that they're going to try to pressure me or take matters into their own hands. Um, in places like South Carolina, we heard that people like Jackson have persuaded themselves that this is actually a very good thing. They're making a lot of money off of this. Um, and, the, and people who make a lot of money off of things manage to persuade themselves that the, this is an affirmatively good thing. So, so if slavery is an affirmatively good thing, uh, because left to their own devices, um, this freedom will simply be a burden to them. And this is Orwellian. You see, slavery is freedom, freedom is slavery. Um, uh, so... Um, but people who believed, as Jackson did, you know, not only wouldn't free their own slaves, but wouldn't want their neighbors to free theirs. I might also postulate there might be a political explanation for it. Um, you have the three-fifths rule, so as long as there are slaves, um, your state is, getting, is gaining from, uh, the, from the slaves. 
in terms of your electoral votes and your congressional representation and so forth. If you free the slaves, most likely they'll leave. They'll move out of state. Right, and then you will actually lose population. This is why um, the notion that three-fifths, well, it's okay because it's better than, than, than you know, that five-fifths would have been even better. So um, this is why that's, that's flawed. Right, because it's going to, as a practical matter, be zero-fifths. And Andy remembers what I wrote in my 2005 book better than I do because I did make that point way back when. And he nicely teed up um, a question that could have uh, enabled me to, to um, reiterate that point, but... Uh, I forgot it, but but thanks for reminding us all. You're discounting the possibility that I may have just thought about myself independently. (laughs) That couldn't happen. No, it it could. Okay, so so I think we've reached the end of the Washington and Franklin uh, deaths, their adieus, and, uh, you know, more to come. What should we make of the most famous duel, that's D-U-A-L, not D-U-E-L, the most famous dual death in American history, the passing away of frenemies John Adams and Thomas Jefferson on the same day, within hours of each other, their homes far apart. The most important facts that require analysis hide in plain view. It at first seems preposterously improbable that these two men would die as they did, not just on the same day, not just with one mentioning the other in his dying breath, even though, of course, they were not in instantaneous contact, not just on the anniversary of their most famous joint venture, the Declaration of Independence, but on precisely the silver anniversary, the 50th birthday of the United States of America, over which they had both presided, at first together, almost. If this were a novel, it would be ridiculed as infinitely too pat. The odds against such a confluence of coincidence seem a million to one. But this confluence was not freakish in the way, say, that a previously unknown geyser briefly and harmlessly erupting on the outskirts of Philadelphia, beginning precisely at high noon, July 4th, 1826, would be virtually impossible to explain, except as a sign from God. The Adams and Jefferson deaths involved human agency, human willpower. Coincidence wore two faces, private and public. On the private side, taking each man separately, we can only marvel at the strength of will involved. Each man died knowing the date, waiting for it, and then expiring precisely on cue, like the great stage actor. Jefferson famously said, This is the fourth, or words to that effect. There's no record of his saying on each of the preceding days, This is the 30th, or this is the first, or this is the second, or this is the third. Each man willed himself to make it to the fourth, and then each sought natural release on that day, and indeed willed it. No hemlock was involved. This was not the death of Socrates. Rather, each man let go, and desperately wanted to end on the fourth, and not say on the fifth or the sixth. There would be far less glory on any other day, earlier or later. Jefferson had taken the opiate laudanum in the preceding days, and he refused any more drugs once he thought he had made it to the fourth. In fact, his last recorded words were, no doctor, nothing more. 
Jefferson's protege, James Monroe, also managed to die on July 4th, exactly five years later, 1831. Nearly five years after that, in 1836, Madison found himself on death's door in late June, but he refused the drugs that might have gotten him to the 4th, dying instead on June 28th. Of course, July 4th was a less meaningful date for Madison. He had not been in Philadelphia in 1776. What kind of person is able to die on cue? Only a person of extraordinary will, with an eye on history and an astonishing drive to be remembered and celebrated in a certain way. The leading founders sought acclaim above all. The love of fame was, in the words of Hamilton's Federalist No. 72, the ruling passion of the noblest minds. If America's great founders died on cue like actors, that is precisely because they were actors of a certain sort, intensely aware of their public audience. Thus, Adams and Jefferson each aimed to die on a key American date, not a personal one, not a special birthday or wedding anniversary, not the death date of a beloved soulmate or a favorite parent or child, each privately aimed for an American date connected to his greatest public moment, his involvement in midwifing the birth of America itself. Recall that President Washington carefully chose a different date for his farewell address in his last season in office in 1796, September 17th. That was the anniversary of the Constitution itself, or to be more precise, the anniversary of the date on which the Grand Federal Convention, over which he had presided, had made public its proposed Constitution and his famous accompanying letter. The Constitution was his creation, his baby. He had not voted for or signed the Declaration. By contrast, Adams and Jefferson were no part of the Constitution-making process. They were Declaration men, men of 1776, in ways that later prompted each to misunderstand the Constitution, Jefferson, by thinking that it, too, was animated by state sovereignty, it wasn't, and Adams, by thinking that a younger man like Hamilton, who was offstage in 1776, was a mere bit player. He wasn't. You mentioned the uh, farewell address. Um, that was uh, not... Not an address that was delivered, correct? It was published. Correct, and it didn't call itself the farewell address that came to be its, um, its moniker. So I think in, in those days, you know, we tend to think of, of um, famous speeches as being delivered to, you know, great acclaim and so forth, but I, it's not only the farewell address, but also the State of the Union uh, was kind of sent, you know, as a message. Um, Starting with Jefferson, um, uh, Washington, who didn't love public speaking, actually um, did uh, give uh, oral presentations, but Jefferson was famously shy about um, public speaking. Um, It's one of the many reasons, perhaps, that uh, uh, he and Hamilton uh, ended up uh, kind of at, at, uh, uh, at loggerheads, because uh, there would be cabinet debates, and Hamilton loved face-to-face oral confrontation, a kind of oral dueling, and Jefferson really didn't like it at all and wasn't very good at it. So Jefferson liked to write things out. He was a, a poet, uh, uh, a penman, and so once he became president, he established the tradition of, of 
sending a written message as his um, annual uh, State of the Union uh, remarks. Um, and it wasn't, as you and I have talked offline before, um, it wasn't really until um, Woodrow Wilson uh, that the tradition of, uh, of oral States of the Union messages revived. Actually, you can. It's the list of speeches that uh, Jefferson gave as president is a pretty brief inaugural address, inaugural address, and that's the end of the speech <laughs> list of speeches that Jefferson gave as president. Um, but I think it also points to the importance of newspapers, which you've mentioned before. You know, you it would if you wanted to disseminate your message to the public. That was how to do it. Not so much giving a speech on television or radio or a fireside chat, but rather getting it into the newspaper. And even if you did give a speech, you'd be composing the speech precisely so that it could be reprinted ideally in full by the newspapers. The first draft of Washington's uh, inaugural address runs uh, uh, to 70 manuscript pages, maybe a little more than 70 um, but he ends up giving um, a very crisp address um, in the end, uh, I believe, precisely so that it would um, uh, uh, perfectly lend itself to uh, immediate and entire newspaper republication. And actually, if you care about the wording, you're better off releasing it directly to the newspapers rather than relying on them to transcribe your address accurately, which, as we know, did not happen. Lincoln famously, the uh, the... Lincoln-Douglas debates, for example, are, are transcribed very differently in the north and the south of, of Illinois in the newspapers. Well, that's going to be volume two. I haven't gotten to that yet, so you're ahead of me on that one, Andy. Okay. Now, um, another point here. You mentioned that the, uh, the founders um, cared about acclaim uh, above all. Um, I remember reading Gordon Wood's uh, book about the, the founders. I believe it was called Revolutionary Characters. Right. And, uh, and there, he, I don't think he would put it as a claim, uh, but rather honor. Um, and honor, fame. There's a famous uh, posthumously published book based on an article um, uh, by the great Douglas Adair, Fame and the Founding Fathers. Fame, repute, character, honor, all these things are very closely connected. Um, and, but, I, and, and, they're, and they're more than mere celebrity. They're, they're not just people know your name. They know you because of your, your virtue. Your, and these are very aristocratic concepts. Um, Gordon Wood talks about them as very much um, uh, ancient uh, uh, ideals. Um, and, and they're different, for example, than mere making money. So, so Charles Beard was on to something when he understood that the framers of the Constitution had a certain kind of self-interest. From, from a certain point of view, everyone does. Everyone does something because they want to do it for some reason or other. But, but Beard tended to see them as money grubbers, um, and, and they were interested in, in making m- money. Jo- George Washington is a big investor, and, 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 and so were the others. But, but Beard basically, I think, got them wrong in thinking that they were um, anything remotely like um, the uh, robber barons of uh, the Gilded Age, with which he was personally familiar. Um, they valued honor, um, repute, glory, fame, acclaim above all else. 
But they they took a little bit different approach to how to achieve it, didn't they? So in other words, I think that if uh, by considering, you know, fame or honor as as a primary motivation for uh, for the founders, the next step in making use of that would be to say what tactics or strategies did they employ in order to achieve that, and how how can we understand things that they did. Um, through that lens. So in the case of Adams, for example, you know, it shows itself, it shows up in sometimes more petty ways, whereas Washington, you know, perhaps in, in bigger picture uh, uh, things. So I, th- I think Adams is a smaller person in various ways. And yes, then the truest um, path is uh, the path of, of, of virtue, which they understood as uh, sacrificing self-interest for the larger common good. Now, I just kind of dumped on Adams a little bit, but, but boy, the guy does give his life to public service, and he's 10 years away from his wife and family, basically, and, and, and that is the model of, 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 of public virtue, of, of sacrificing oneself for the greater common good. I think it's a, a theme that you'll come back to. You know, this is the end of the book, but you do sort of come back to it within the book um, again and again. So shall we... Uh, Continue with the reading. Right, and this will be the last section. For Jefferson, the Declaration was all about its soaring words, words that he, as a proud wordsmith, had largely composed, and its grand ideas about revolution and about free and independent states. In fact, the Constitution had repudiated this last idea, free and independent states. Jefferson never understood this. He was as has now just been seen, an intensely willful man, and he could not see what he would not see, just as, in the end, he could not die on any other day than the day of his choice. Jefferson's attachment to the Declaration, his sense of special authorship of it, was the unmistakable message of his gravesite inscription, instructions for which he had composed well before July 1826. And here are the instructions. On the faces of the obelisk, the following inscription, and not a word more. Quote, Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. Unquote. Because by these, as testimonials that I have lived, I wish most to be remembered. Note that there's not a word in these instructions or on the final obelisk about the Constitution or about Jefferson's service under the Constitution as the first Secretary of State, the second Vice President, or the third President. Jefferson wanted to be remembered because of the Declaration, and he wanted the Declaration itself remembered above all else. How perfect would it be if he could make it to the Silver Fourth? How imperfect would it be if he lasted past that day. His death plan was thus set long before the Silver Fourth, as was his gravestone inscription. To be sure, the gravestone was not yet inscribed, but the plan to carve in stone his, his reference to the Declaration was indeed already metaphorically carved in stone. Adams's death on July 4th, 1826, showed that he too was a man of truly extraordinary will and inner strength, every bit as able as Jefferson to live as long as he had to, and then die on a dime for fame. 
Indeed, Adams had to make it past his 90th birthday, whereas Jefferson perished at age 83. For many years, perhaps, John Adams was living just to die in just the right way. But there were obvious differences between the two men who seemed to die in perfect harmony. Adams was obsessed by Jefferson, but not vice versa. Jefferson made no recorded mention of Adams at or near the end, whereas Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. In fact, Jefferson had predeceased Adams by a matter of hours, though there was, of course, no way Adams could possibly have known that fact, given the time it took news to travel. There is something oddly apt in old Adams' last words. And one aspect of that aptness is that old Adams was, in fact, wrong. As was seen in our microscopic examination of the writs of assistance episode, that's chapter one of the book, old Adams, in his declining years, often got key things wrong, but wrong in ways that nonetheless were then and remain today deeply revealing. What, then, was so significant about the false line about Jefferson? First, with this reference, Adams wanted his collaboration with Jefferson remembered. Adams had once been a team player. He lost that skill as he aged. But his partnership with Jefferson in 1776 was indeed among his greatest moments. Second, even as Adams died with a revealing rosebud on his lips, Jefferson. The error in his reference should remind us that he and Jefferson were not quite in sync. There was friendship in Adams's dying breath, but also rivalry. The two men were emphatically not peas in a pod, even though they were together in 1776 and died together and apart exactly 50 years later. They were not best friends, even if Adams said so and believed it so. They were, at best, intensely rivalrous friends. Frenemies, we would say today. The two in death wanted America to remember entirely different things. Jefferson wanted the words and the state sovereignty principles of the Declaration of Independence remembered. Adams wanted Adams remembered. The fact that he and Jefferson had been in the room where it happened, when even Washington was not in the room, and when no one had yet heard of a boy... Adams's word, oft repeated, named Hamilton. Old Adams's compulsive need to see himself as and to be remembered as Jefferson's friend began long before 1826. In late 1809, Adams wrote a jaw-dropping letter to Benjamin Rush, himself a Declaration signer and friend of both Adams and Jefferson, indeed the man who brokered the famous epistolary rapprochement between the two ex-presidents in their final years. According to Adams's 1809 missive, this is a quote, there has never been the smallest interruption of the personal friendship between me and Mr. Jefferson that I know of. You should remember that Jefferson was but a boy to me. I was at least 10 years older than him in age and more than 20 years older than him in politics. I am bold to say I was his preceptor in politics and taught him everything that has been good and solid in his whole political conduct, unquote. The inaccuracies and self-delusions of this passage are mind-boggling. Never the smallest interruption of friendship? Adams boycotted Jefferson's presidential inauguration. Before that, Adams signed into law a sedition act that criminalized Jefferson's subsequent collusion with James Callender and clandestine authorship of the Kentucky Resolutions. 
More than 20 years older politically? Adam scribbled his first private notes on the Writs of Assistance episode in 1761 and anonymously published his first notable writings on the imperial crisis in late 1765. Jefferson won election to the House of Burgesses in 1769 and published his famous pamphlet, A Summary View, in 1774. Jefferson was thus a prominent lawmaker before he had even heard of Adams, who first openly set foot on a continental public stage in the Boston Massacre trial in late 1770, defending two British soldiers. Taught him everything? Funny that Jefferson never said anything like that. In 1822, in response to a 4th of July address by an earnest youngster, Adams went even further. Quote, Jefferson and Adams were never rivals. It was Hamilton that was the rival of Jefferson. Unquote. Never even rivals? What an odd view of the election of 1800. In the end, it was Hamilton who pushed the Federalist House to pick Jefferson, while Adams sulked in his tent. Old Adams felt humiliated by his 1800 loss to Jefferson, and these deep feelings of humiliation generated a complex psychic response. If Jefferson really was always his friend, and indeed pupil, he really hadn't entirely lost, quite. He had simply passed the baton. By late 1809, Jefferson himself had passed the baton to Madison, and old Adams was beginning to think about what might happen next. Unlike other leading founding fathers, Old Adams had a son and namesake, John Quincy. Perhaps John Quincy could himself become president, but only if Old Adams made lasting peace with the Virginia dynasty, and with Jefferson in particular, who himself had been a father figure and mentor to the boy, John Quincy, back in Paris in the 1780s. Maybe John Adams could indeed win a second, indeed a third term, vicariously through John Quincy. He whose son wins last, laughs best. When old Adams died, his son was indeed in the executive mansion. If Jefferson still lived, in fact he did not, perhaps, old Adams dreamed, the great Virginian could help John Quincy in 1828 against the military madman, Andrew Jackson. For all the unreliability of old Adams's claims, there is still a deep truth lurking in all the falsity just as there was in old Adams' tales about young Otis. Adams and Jefferson had not dined alone in 1776. They had dined together and worked together, along with others, of course. And amazingly, they died just as they had lived, together in a way, but also apart. You know, you describe the uh, Adams as being, you know, quite needy in this correspondence with Jefferson. Um, what's in it for Jefferson? Um, he's not really quite the initiator um, of this correspondence, uh, um, but um, and, and it's really brokered mainly by Benjamin Rush, who is a friend of, of both Jefferson's and Adams and wants the two men um, to patch things up both for themselves and for the good of the country. Um, so what's in it for Jefferson? First, Jefferson doesn't like conflict. He, he hates conflict. Um, and that's why a lot of people see him as duplicitous, because he never quite looks someone in the eye and says, I, I'm sorry, but no. Um, 
So um, he, um, I think, does welcome the opportunity to, to connect with not just one old friend, but two, um, John and Abigail, um, um, when the opportunity arises. Uh, he uh, has, he's a winner, um, he beat Adam, so he can be magnanimous in 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 victory. Um, his party is ascendant. Um, John Quincy Adams will eventually come to power um, uh, uh, by, um, in effect, joining the the Jefferson political dynasty, the Jefferson Madison Monroe uh, political dynasty. Uh, he knows that this correspondence will become public. Um, uh, everyone keeps copies of not just the letters, not, they only, not only keep the letters they receive, but um, famous people keep copies of all the letters that they send out. And, and so he knows that eventually this correspondence will become public. So he's, he's cautious in, in various ways in this exchange. Um, Adams is more um, uh, loquacious, um, also a little um, 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 more edgy, um, more candid, Jefferson is is rather guarded here, um, uh, um, but um, I think you know he's also in the twilight of his life. He's an old man, and uh, it's a chance to reminisce with someone else who um, was there at the beginning. Um, you know, you talk about the the Declaration, and that um, of course very important to to Jefferson. He wants it on his on his tombstone, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, what is it about the content as opposed to the mere fact of authorship of the Declaration that was uh, so precious to Jefferson? Now, you mentioned that the, um, just to anticipate what you might say in response in part, that there's a more states, state-centered uh, perspective in the Declaration. But that's not a, a do you think that, that he really was making that argument in his adherence to the, to the Declaration? Because it's a hard argument to say that the the Declaration overrides the Constitution. Well, we have to remember he wasn't there for the Constitution. He's like Rip Van Winkle. He missed the whole thing, and that's part of the problem. That's why he says such idiotic things uh, late in life. He's not a founder of the Constitution in the way that preeminently Washington was, um, but that even Madison was. So Madison and Jefferson disagree fundamentally on issues of nullification and secession, where Jefferson is prone to say kind of silly things and Madison much less so because Jefferson missed the great nationalizing moment that was the Constitution. So yes, uh, um, I say elsewhere in the book, Jefferson Davis was aptly named. Jefferson never got the memo that um, the 13 free and independent states that the Declaration helps give birth to, leading to an Articles of Confederation that's a mere treaty, a league, a firm league, but only a league um, among um, explicitly self-described sovereign states. That's Article 2 of the Articles of Confederation. Jefferson never quite understands that all of that in the Declaration and in the Constitution was, excuse me, in the Declaration and in the Articles of Confederation was basically superseded by a constitution that creates a, a very different um, kind of a relationship, uh, USA 2.0, uh, a strong, indivisible union in which explicitly 
um, there is no mention of state sovereignty and by design and uh, explicitly the document describes itself as a constitution and not a confederation or league. You say that this is a a concept that Madison understands better than Jefferson for somewhat obvious reasons, one would say, although Madison's all over the place in part over time. Right, but not ever on things like secession and nullification, Um, and and in part because he was uh, there during that epic nationalizing event that we call the Constitution. I'm calling it an event because it's not just the words of the document, which we call the Constitution, but the constituting, the ordainment, the establishment, the whole year in which basically um, Madison himself says at a key moment that ratification of the Constitution by each state must be, quote, in toto and forever. He's part of that process in a way that Jefferson isn't. Jefferson is getting letters um, and reading newspapers maybe off in Paris, but, but he's doing other things in Paris too, chasing women, drinking wine, who knows what else. Um, and yes, my view is Jefferson is utterly unsound on some of the most important constitutional issues of all time, like nullification and secession, in part because he's a 1776 man and not a 1787-88 man. Actually, I think you can see the distinction uh, in their understandings um, later or after the the Constitution is drafted um, in the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. You know, it's interesting you study these um, in history classes, and people tend to group them together, the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, as if they were saying the same thing. But they're actually very, very different when it comes to points about nullification and so forth. The Virginia resolution, which was largely authored, ghostwritten by Madison, um, speaks uh, of of an interposition, but not uh, any kind of active uh, nullification by the states, that they can object to things that the federal government uh, does, like the Sedition Act, of course, um, which is what this is about, and, uh, but they can't actually do anything about it. And whereas the Kentucky Resolution, which was largely uh, pushed by Jefferson, or largely authored by Jefferson, is far more extreme and radical in that, case, in that uh, topic. Right, and I'd refer our audience to the earlier podcast where we talked about um, uh, the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, um, our our podcast about um, Adams and about uh, Jefferson, uh, where we parse some of those uh, differences. Actually, in a passage that I'm not going to be reading for this podcast, uh, the the next section in Adieu's, the final section, really, of Adieu's, um, I, um, I... um, remove Madison uh, from the stage. Madison is the, the last one to die. And I actually talk about how at the very end, Madison is trying to clean up Jefferson's reputation by uh, airbrushing it just a, a bit um, uh, during the, the nullification crisis um, where John C. Calhoun uh, is invoking the Kentucky resolutions and Jeff and Jefferson's in his grave. He, he dies, in, of course, as we just heard in in 1826, and the nullification uh, crisis is really 1832. And so it's left to Madison to um, uh, try to basically say, actually, Jefferson n- never really said that, and if he said it, he didn't really mean it. And the Virginia Kentucky resolutions were posted on our website. Um, in an earlier podcast, so you can pull them up and, and read them there. And thank you for that, Andy. Pleasure. Um, one last question. Um, 
you know, you, this is not really addressed in the book, so I'm, I'm taking a chance that you're knowledgeable about it nevertheless. Um, I noticed in the last section uh, on uh, uh, Jefferson, you refer to James Monroe as a protege of Jefferson. Right. But earlier in the book, you referred to him as a protege of Madison. He's um, probably he's both. I mean, there there there's this this trio. He's um uh, he lives closer to Madison, but he's probably first and foremost uh, a protege of Jefferson. Indeed, um, Monroe runs against Madison uh, on more than uh, one occasion, or at least opposes Madison on more than one occasion. Um, Monroe uh, votes against the Constitution in the Virginia ratification convention and of course Madison is uh, uh, pushing the constitution preeminently in the Virginia ratification constitution and then in the first congressional elections actually um, Patrick Henry um, uh, structures the districts so that Monroe actually is running against Madison. Madison ends up beating Monroe but the Madison-Monroe relationship um, is a little bit um, more complicated. I, I would say Monroe was probably just a more loyal Jeffersonian down the line, and his relationship to Madison is a little more complicated, in part because Madison is more the nationalist, um, and uh, uh, for, for uh, in ways that we just discussed. So I think it's uh, the the lesson there for us today is that Jefferson and Madison are not so so much peas in a pod as as one might think. At times they are, at times they're not. And they create. that's partly what makes them a good team. They have slightly different um, temperaments. They do um, have, slight, have slightly different views on certain issues, um, but they have a, a strong bilateral loyalty, and they, they, they work as a very powerful team. You know, this is one of the virtues of, of this book, which is that it's so wide-ranging that you see, you know, these paths you know, come together and then diverge and so forth through the through the decades, and it's this kind of wide-angle view of the founding all the way up to the death of Madison that uh, is really not available anywhere else, and it will be available to you, dear listeners, um, imminently. So I advise you to get on that computer and type in that order. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. And next week, we're going to have a very topical session on the court packing and other uh, court reform issues that are before us now. And then after that, some uh, readings on uh, the election of 1800. Uh, which turns out to be rather more like the election of 20. 20 and um, the raucousness of, of, of t- even 2021 than most people know. Can't wait.